This episode is brought to you by Select International Tours. Find out more about joining me on pilgrimage along with our spiritual director, the pro-provincial of the Americas for the Community of St. John, Father John Michael Paul. Visit selectinternationaltours.com slash BTS. That's selectinternationaltours.com slash BTS. Media presents The Brooke Taylor Show. Encounter, adventure, evangelize. And now your host, Brooke Taylor. Delighted to welcome back to the show, Layla Miller. Layla joined me as part of a series on holy masculinity a while back. And as we approach the holidays, we think of family. But for many, that's a complicated scenario and sometimes painful. I'm especially talking about when there is a divorce in the mix. And hopefully today's episode will be healing balm for those carrying that wound, no matter how many years it's been. And that's our theme on today's show. Layla is a Catholic writer and author. She often speaks on issues related to moral theology, church teaching on marriage, family, human sexuality. She is the author of Raising Chaste Catholic Men, Practical Advice, Mom to Mom, which I always recommend to my mom of boys, Made This Way, How to Prepare Kids to Face Today's Tough Moral Issues, and the book we'll talk about today, Primal Loss, The Now adult children of divorce speak and impossible marriages redeemed they didn't end the story in the middle and those titles are all important and that's why i'm naming them because each individual book i know has such powerful themes and truth so i would recommend all of them layla is a wife and mom of eight children and grandmother as well welcome to the show thank you brooke i'm very happy to be back here with you you know, one of the things that I admire about you so much is that you are not afraid to tackle the tough stuff, sexuality, divorce, these thorny issues that impact almost all of us and that the church is very clear on as well, but we don't often discuss. So thank you for doing that. Oh, it, it needs to be done. So hopefully more and more people are going to start to pick up that uh, that baton and run with it. This book in particular Primal Loss, The Now Adult Children of Divorce Speak. You received some notable endorsements. I was looking right at the back here. Bishop Thomas Olmsted, the Diocese of Phoenix, and he says the book needed to be written and needs to be read. And I agree. I had no idea until I started opening the pages. And I was actually at band with my son, and I couldn't contain the tears. Very, very powerful. I don't think that I was prepared for that reaction. And so your book is about what it says, the now adult children of divorce speak. What inspired you to write this book since you yourself are not an adult child of divorce? Right. I'm from an intact family. My uh, husband and I have been married 31 years. Divorce is not was not on my radar screen at all. I have a friend, I have a, a group of friends here in Phoenix, good Catholic ladies, and they have families and, you know, solid marriages. And one of the friends in her 40s um, started to, just over the course of our friendship, she would say things about um, complications that are in her life still that have to do with a step parent or some her dad's wife's grandchildren or just different things that she she would talk about these complications and i thought gosh i mean these things are still affecting her i think her uh, parents got divorced when she was about six 
And so I said, you know, people like me, we don't even think about it. We don't have these burdens and it's still affecting your life. And I I can see there are some things that are not quite worked out. Why don't you write something about it? Well, she said, oh yeah, maybe I will. And, And she never could. Uh, that's another thing. There's an emotional block, you know, as far as like trying to put this out there, including people who tried to answer questions from my book. But when she couldn't do it, I said, well, I'm just going to throw out questions off the top of my head. And really, it was just eight questions I thought of. And I'm going to ask people on my social media platforms if they would want to answer these questions, if they're adult children of divorce. And I was shocked at how many people said they wanted to answer the questions because they knew it would be anonymous which was very, very important for them. I think a, a day or two into it, I had over 100 people who wanted to answer this questionnaire, this series of questions. It turned out that not everybody could emotionally do it. Very difficult to, to, to get these answers on paper or get that keyboard going. We ended up with 70. So we just went with 70 of the respondents and they answered my questions. And I just took, that's how the chapters go. It's basically not my voice, none of it except maybe the introduction and the the closing, but you know, the chapter is a question. And then the paragraphs underneath that are just how each of them answered anonymously and very devastating. You know, I call it, did an avalanche of pain that came forth from this questionnaire. And on the other hand, you also did receive some backlash for even approaching this topic, I know. And that was for me opening the pages. I felt like I was guarding my heart because I know all of us do, people in our lives who have experienced divorce and I'm thinking of even a family member that I know and it wasn't her choice. It wasn't something that she ever would have wanted or chosen. She would have always tried to fight for her marriage. And I was worried as I opened the pages, well, how is this going to to read? Is this going to be, you know, reading as a condemnation? It's done now. But again, you right in the beginning do a thorough job of laying out right at the start who this book is for, what the book is and what the book is not. It's not a scholarly work, but it's people telling their deeply personal stories. And I would think when I read that, my heart just melted and I thought, okay, I want to hear their personal testimonies. But yet, you did receive some negativity also just for touching on this topic. Yeah, it's a touchy topic. No one wants to talk about it. Um, If you have a book, for example, of women who tell the story of their regret of abortion, for example, people would be okay with that. Catholics would be okay with that. And we would know that doesn't mean you're necessarily condemning everyone who hasn't gotten to that point yet. Or we would say, oh, well, we want these women to have their voice because a lot of pain. Well, for some reason, Um, and we could go into that, but the children of divorce are not really supposed to have that kind of a voice. They're not supposed to be talking about how much damage was done to them. They don't want to say it, first of all, because they love their parents, but so they're stuffing a lot. So there's a silence about it. And because this is kind of a first of its kind type book that's been out there and maybe uh, resonated with people, it got the backlash from a lot of adults who either who made the choice to divorce. I, I do find that the abandoned spouses, because I'm on the side of the abandoned spouse, the abandoned spouse is as much a victim of divorce as the children of divorce. But you get a lot of backlash from people who decided, you know, m- maybe they, they were the ones who instigated a divorce and they have the line that the culture says, which is the kids are fine. 
you know, the kids are absolutely fine. In fact, my kids are thrilled that I got divorced. Everybody's happy. Everybody's so much better off. And and I would say that that's not true. <laughs> Social science doesn't bear that out. The church teaching certainly doesn't bear that out. If you read the catechism on divorce and what, they, what even the church says happens to these children, it's not a pretty picture. Even in those cases, those very few cases where it has to happen, that the family has to separate, you know, that the parents have to separate physically because of danger. Even then, there is a great loss to the children, even if it's necessary. So again, we can't be apologists in any way for the goodness of divorce and how, you know, it gives everybody new horizons and wonderful, and that these kids are all doing great. Boy, they are not doing great. And the problem is they can't talk about it. And so this one little book, it's written by one little housewife in Phoenix. I didn't write it, but, you know, put together, edited by one person. For that to generate so much hostility, just because these kids anonymously, who now are all grown up, are going to speak about their pain, it's almost like it's just not allowed. So it's kind of shocking and it's kind of sad. I hope for anyone that came from that perspective that they would read the book because I feel like even within the first few pages, it is impossible not to be moved and have overwhelming compassion for those anonymous writers who took the time to contribute and share. And one of the things that stuck with me and I think about periodically is a statement that Dr. Peter Kreeft made when he was on this program and talking about divorce. And he was saying that in our country, over half of our families essentially commit suicide. That's what divorce is. And for any other issue in the world, they would, those in charge of, of health would say, this is a major problem. We need to do something about it. How can we preserve our families? And yet we're really not allowed to say that. We can't get to the root. And that's what I think for me reading this book, I, I came home and I hugged my husband and I thought I wanna give this to everyone. It seems like a depressing book, but I think it's so important. And when I was conceptualizing this interview, uh, the thought, about this book that came to me, and maybe it was because I was in band with my son, was it's like a symphony because there are different movements in the book, like a, a Beethoven number five that's very dramatic. And really, you are the conductor in a way. You're not playing the music or writing the story, but you're rather arranging the testimonies. And so I want to open up to the first movement, I guess, and that is the effect of divorce. That is this impending tension building. And you start right out of the gate. The very first few sentences I had highlighted Devastation, that's the first word. I still don't know why they divorced. I thought their marriage was perfect and that we had a perfect life. I don't have anywhere to call home and that has been a huge sadness all my life. Their 56th anniversary would have been November 4th, which I still mark on my calendar. They were married 26 years. So right there, the tears started flowing reading that. And then it goes on and on. And I'll just touch on at the end here. Understand that divorce was the final blow. What led up to it can't be discounted and yet cannot be compared in its devastation. The aftermath was equally devastating. It would take decades to recover and accept the healing and protection of God's mercy. Any stories in that chapter that stand out to you? Any excerpts? There's there's quite a few and, and and I think one that really stands out to me is the the girl, the young girl who who just keeps recounting now she's in her forties, but she goes back to tell this story. She's an only child and she said she kind of 
takes us in in the present tense, you know, and I, I came down and I, you know, I, 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 they're fighting and I said, I didn't want them to divorce. They said, don't worry, everything's going to be fine. And so I, you know, I say, okay. And then later I come down and there's two chairs and they're empty and it looks like they've been fighting the night before. And I, I'm, I'm alone. I don't, I don't know what's going on. And then, then I'm 12 and my dad comes in and right before I go off to school, he says that he and my mom are getting a divorce and I'm told to go off to school and I don't have anyone and I have no one to talk to and I'm really alone. And, and then she just goes on and on about why, why did this happen? And she's actually so emotional in it and, and she's embarrassed at her emotion. And she just goes on about, you know, and then look, suddenly I'm a teenager and, oh, look, why is this girl suddenly gained 40 pounds because she's eating so much? Why is she sleeping with all the bad boys in town? You know, why is she do and no one is hearing her cry, you know, and and it's just the the parents have gone off to their romances and she's just left alone and, and in her grief. I mean, really it is grief. And 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 the adults don't see it. They don't see it. They think there's something wrong with the child and they don't put it back onto the actions of the adults that have devastated this child's life. You know, and this is a woman, again, she's got her own family now. She's got several children. She's a good Catholic. But she, going back to it, you can feel it physically in your own gut as you're reading it. Her, her story does really stick out. And and, uh, and it's just one of many. I mean, there are others. Like you say, there are some that are so heartbreaking that one lady had, um, her parents had just celebrated their 25th renewal of vows. Eight children in a Catholic family. He taught at the Catholic school. She thought, you know, well, this cohesive family. And and then he went off and found his old love, I guess, from high school. And he just, he left He left her mother. And her mother stayed faithful and just kind of didn't speak badly about him, but just went on to be destitute financially. And then they had to go live in a terrible area of town. And then the, the, there was a break-in in the apartment and the brother got beaten up and later he committed suicide. And, you know, all these terrible things happened. And meanwhile, the, the protective father, the, the, that is the protection in a family. The, the husband and father is just gone. And then all these devastating things happen. And then her mother did die um, a couple of years after the, the son died and she died alone. So there's so many devastating stories and you realize, yeah, you feel it as you're reading it. You're feeling it in your gut. And you, you, I, I tell people, don't read this without you know, a glass of wine and a box of Kleenex because you will not be prepared for what you're going to read. And and I have since been told by a lot of the contributors, they didn't even touch the surface. They just, they were kind of going through it and just, okay, I, I just have to write the bare minimum. It's so much deeper than anything they've written, but it is devastating. That story you just recounted is one that stands out to me most. And I ended up sharing it with my mom. I shared it with my husband and a few friends. And just because you begin to connect the dots, you begin to see things. And even my mom was watching a movie about the life of Michael Landon. And she called me afterwards and she said, I have to tell you, you know what you told me about that book you were reading about divorce. And she said, I could see it. I could see it in this movie. And it was like these pieces coming together. Even I think for the first time, I really thought about the long-lasting effects. I was listening to an interview with Oliver Stone. This is a famous Hollywood writer, director, and he wrote an autobiography, and he wrote it early on when he was young, but he didn't publish it, I think, until the 90s, but it's called A Child's Night Dream, and in it, he talks about how his mother, who is Catholic, his father was Jewish, he was raised Episcopalian, but the single most traumatic event in his life was his parents' divorce, and how it just rocked his world 
world. And then, interestingly, a lot of his movies go on to have father-son relationship themes that have featured heavily in his films. And so that was another, oh, okay, it's clicking. And it's so hard because you don't want to point the finger at a bad guy here. You realize a lot of couples, they do the best they can, and maybe there's abuse, and maybe there was dysfunction from the beginning. But we can't also discount the reality that there is a consequence, there is a great grief and a loss, and that at the time, the children probably don't even know how to put voice to that grief. And in the foreword of your book, it was written by Jennifer Roback Morse from the Ruth Institute, and she writes, if the children could verbalize their feelings, which they can't, they are afraid to risk losing their parents' love. They don't want to upset mom or dad, so they learn to silence themselves. It sounds like you really saw that through this process. Yes. One lady, when she was writing, she said, I'm so grateful for the anonymity of this book because I am literally terrified that my parents somehow will see my entry and they'll know how damaged I am. Like she was terrified. They love their parents. Children love their parents. To know and to verbalize that the worst thing that ever happened to you in your life was done to you by your parents, one or both. I mean, even if it's one was an innocent party to the divorce, one or both of those parents have sinned. There is no way to say that divorce only happens because someone has sinned somewhere. <laughs> to somehow verbalize or, or 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 tell them, you you've damaged me. Like you, your actions, even though I love you, I love you, I forgive you, I am working through all of it. That is terrifying to a child, even as an adult child, because as a little child, as I had another um, adult child of divorce tell me, you might be able to extract that from an adult child of divorce. But to a small child, someone whose very life, their clothing, their food, their shelter, their security, everything is dependent on the adults in their life, the parents. Your life is depending on these these two people, one or both. What are you going to do? You're going to say you you've destroyed my family you've i feel so much pain and it's your fault no you 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 automatically want to trust them you want to do what they say you want to be happy the way they say you're supposed to feel you want to love their new romantic partner the way they do i mean you want all this but there's something terribly wrong because it's so disordered and again you go back to god's creation this is so disordered and we're asking kids to take on something that even the parents don't want to deal with thus the divorce, right? So they are asked to kind of live in this straddle, these two worlds that even the adults can't can't handle. They walk away from the other side, but now the child has to straddle that where an adult couldn't even do it. We don't think about it because it is so devastating. If we thought about it, we would, I think Jennifer Robach Morris says, you know, we would be so ashamed of what we've done to the children. And this book paints that picture really without having to have any scholarly statistics or data. It's tr it's through the testimonies and witness of those who lived through it. And I think hearing this too gave me an opportunity to pause growing up having friends whose parents split up and realizing I had no idea of the sorrow they were going through at home. And I remember a friend of mine, she had her own key because 
there was a divorce. And so she was largely left alone. And I thought that would be so cool to have your own key and come home and go. And it's like just not knowing as a child, but I think all the more a child going through that. And you also point out or the stories point out that the parents then are trying to get their feet on the ground. They're trying to get their life together. And so, so much energy is geared toward that, that very often that the child, because they can't articulate or they're holding it together for the sake of mom and dad, that they kind of get not neglected, but just emotionally so, because mom and dad may be then dating, they may be trying to, you know, find new housing and everything that goes into that. That gap of time, whether it's months or years, can be absolutely devastating in addition to the trauma of the separation. Yeah, the kids can fall through the cracks very easily. Um, And think of even an abandoned spouse. Again, I I work now with a lot of abandoned spouses, um, and they oftentimes are even suicidal. You know, they've seen their family break apart and their wife or their husband leave, and they they kind of know this is this is not good for the kids. And I'm you know they're personally devastated because their their life has blown apart. And so they could be depressed, despondent, suicidal, having to go back to work if it's a woman. Um, the man, you know, everything he's worked for is gone. His, his family can't protect him anymore. I mean, there's so many different emotions, and they're going through that as adults. We can imagine. I mean, it's 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 horrifying. So yes, how do you focus your attention on what the children need when you're barely clinging? to sanity sometimes yourself, or if you're the one who left, let's say someone leaves for a new romance or a new whatever, uh, they're very focused on that new life. And they're absolutely convinced that everything's going to be fine. So they're not too concerned. And if the kid starts acting out, well, okay, that's the kid's problem. We got to get the kid to a therapist and put him on medication. And, you know, what's wrong with this kid? So again, the kid sort of gets the, every, the brunt of everything put on them because the parents are doing their survival or their new life. You know, it's not that they want that. Again, there are so many, I always go back to like what you said, there's so many parents who do not want this divorce. So we have to be very careful and understand that every divorced person is not divorced because they, they wanted to be. You point that out. You point that out in the book also that oh. statistically, it's frequently not a mutual decision. And like you said, an abandoned spouse and the devastation of that. Yeah. Yeah, so it, it is devastating. And so the, the dysfunction of the family, which was there before the divorce, clearly, because you don't divorce unless there's some kind of somebody thinks either there's something going wrong or there really is some serious dysfunction. What the divorce does, and this is the lie of the devil, you know, the divorce is going to make it all better. It, it does the opposite, of course. It, it, it may, it, like an abortion, in one sense, it, there may be a release valve, like, oh, we're finally out of the dysfunction. We're finally out of the pressure and the stress, and whew, we can start again and try again. And yet, things get more and more complicated as even we get further and further away from the divorce. And there is no fixing of that dysfunction. The dysfunction hasn't gone away. It's simply added a divorce on top of all the dysfunction. As we move on in our symphony, I want to go to the the movement of retrospective. And you have your your chapter about that kind of looking back and looking at feelings of a child versus feelings of an adult. That now these grown children are able to look back. And some of the highlights I have is 
Contributing number 61, as an adult, I now better understand the reasons for their separation. While I still don't agree, I at least have more answers. It has shown me how flawed and broken my mother is and how and often makes me pity her. And contributor 64, I think the difference is that I can express myself better now. However, I find myself feeling very much the same feelings I felt as a child, which oftentimes makes me feel as if I never developed properly because of the divorce. It's almost as if there were some sort of stunting of growth, kind of like when you don't eat nutritious foods as a baby or child, you don't grow properly. How often did you find that theme of searching for healthy identity, especially in light of marriage and the path that God would have for them? That's a whole tragic subject, you know, approaching their own relationships. So if you have this past where you've seen conflict leads to permanent separation, you approach your own dating relationships or marriage with such anxiety. There's a lot of anxiety. There's a lack of trust, the lack of identity. Like who, who am I? You know, these kids lose their identity when they lose their family. Cause again, it's so primal. It's who you are, and then suddenly it's shattered. So to go into a marriage without that role model of what to do when conflict comes and how to just re- relax, you know, it's it's still a forever, you know, marriage is forever, just because you have a fight, it's not that big of a deal. They don't have that. Everything is panic. I, there was this one poor lady who, she said she married a saint. And she said, but I, for the first maybe 10 or 20 years of her marriage, was still having panic attacks that he would leave her or that she would leave. And she she felt suicidal sometimes about this. And she said, it's not rational because he's great, he's wonderful. And uh, she and some of the others, you know, they would say they would they would plan in their heads for when they were gonna be a single mom or, uh, or when their wife was gonna leave or one lady was squirreling away money in her sock drawer for, for years, just waiting for that day. So they, I, I always say, when I married Dean, I just, was very comfortable. It was like, oh, okay, we're getting married. This is great. And to me, it was like, this is for life. And I grew up with parents who fought, you know, and, and he did too. And it was just like, well, it was never a question that I was comfortable. We're going to get married for life. It wasn't a big deal. I did not have a big burden on my head when I got married. I didn't realize these children of divorce have a huge burden on their head. They, they go in almost terrified. And imagine that kind of anxiety throughout your marriage. It's just, it's unthinkable for for those of us who grew up in an intact family. We just, we can't imagine it. So I feel kind of naive, you know, looking back, I didn't know this till I was 50 until I I edited this book. I did not realize the walking wounded, millions, millions of them. And they're going into marriages and they're trying to raise their own kids this way. And they're trying to keep the faith. And it is more difficult and more stressful than we can imagine. So if we can just open the eyes even of the people from the intact families to realize this is affecting the fabric of society that we live in and we have not seen it. There's a story that I paged back to when you were saying that because I think it illustrates exactly what you're saying. And it's a bit long, but it's, I think, an exact example. If I had to boil it down, this writer says, I would say that the greatest effect 
would be on my own marriage and my family dynamics now that I have my own family. I was raised by feminists, my mom and her sisters, and I suppose the culture as well, who instilled in me the idea that you must always be able to look after yourself. I took that to heart and was very outspoken. I shudder now at how obnoxious I was. And I also was determined not to have to rely on a man, anyone, to take care of me. Then I fell in love. As it turns out, the strong woman stuff didn't help me in marriage at all. My heart was guarded always. And what do you know? That's not really how you do marriage. In fact, I didn't know how to do marriage at all. How sad is it that when my husband was away on business, I was actually more at ease. I knew how to do the single parent thing. That was a piece of cake for me. It was what I knew. My entire marriage has been difficult for me. And then it goes on to another story. But, you know, that speaks to the feminist infiltration of the ideology that has really torn away the fabric of, I think, trust, the trust, the mutual self-giving that comes with the sacrament of marriage, which is why in the, the true understanding of the sacrament of marriage and of matrimony, it is our last best hope. It's because you see that everything is covered there. So a restoration, I think, of that is so sorely needed. And our culture's yeah. redefining marriage all the time. So you think, what hope would we have outside of, of this foundational truth that the church teaches as a gift, as a beautiful gift? Right, because the society defines marriage as a romantic thing. It's it's a romantic romantic feelings between the adults, and that's why when those romantic feelings are gone, then it's perfectly legitimate to move along to another romantic union. And that's not what marriage is. It's it's never been what marriage is. That came along in the 1960s with the whole sexual revolution. But every society before that knew that marriage was about a permanent union, you know, of a man and a woman together for the stability of the children that were going to come through that union and needed to be raised to adulthood for the good of society. So that was the stability that children were, um, you know, that's their it's actually their God-given right. Uh, it's their natural right to have a, a married mother and father, and that the mother and father would sacrifice themselves for the children's stability. Remember when we used to say, uh, "Stay married for the children." Yes, and what what we say now is, "Oh, that's so outdated. We don't stay married for the children. That's ridiculous." We've made it an adults-only type of uh, agreement. And then when one or both of the adults are not happy, they just, they move on. So where are the children? What, what happens to them? Uh, they're dangling out there. They're just completely lost and they're shattered. And of course, that's what Satan wants more than anything. He's just very happy to have the sacrifice of the children. We have this God-given of knowing that marriage is a lifelong union where we sinners can have a safe haven to be sinners. And we know that we will be loved anyway. So as we work out our sinfulness, as we go along in the, through the years, that we will not be kicked to the curb because we uh, are, become unlovable here or there or, or during this dark time or that dark time. And then the children see the fidelity, hopefully of both parents, sometimes of just one parent, that we love the unlovable, we stick with our sacred promises, Again, even if there's danger or something that has to be separate for a while or even indefinitely, but the children see that and they they recognize fidelity. And it's Christ-like because Christ had very a very adulterous, very uh, abusive spouse, us, 
and yet he he was faithful to us to death. So, and marriage we know is a reflection of, of Christ in the church. So we've lost all that. I'm opening to the page now about resiliency. That was a theme throughout oh. so far what we've talked about. Our children resilient and a whole chapter about that. One quick underline from contributor 64. I want to scream when I hear children are resilient. Children are trying to survive. After the divorce, one of my sisters was old enough to run away to my mother's house. My abusive father had custody and my brother did the same thing not long after my sister. I ended up taking a protector role for my sisters and I tried to be gone as much as possible. So I developed coping skills. We learned to adapt, but I always felt deformed and different from kids with regular homes. Someone else says, I was not resilient, but I didn't know that. I didn't recognize the gaping vacuum I tried to fill throughout my teen years. It's only now in retrospect that I see how all my destructive choices were the result of craving family, while at the same time fearing the fragility of family. I regret the poor choices I made. I mourn the murder of my unborn babies. I didn't know, I didn't realize. My family doesn't know about this. They don't need to. It is not their burden to bear. I recently told my husband that I don't have one truly joyful family memory from my childhood. I had fun times, of course, but I do not have one meaningful, happy, secure family memory, not one. And I think for anyone in a troubled marriage, this book will inspire you to try to work at keeping your family together because you have, and that's where we kind of crescendo in the symphony, this beautiful chapter of hope where marriages have come back. And then you have an entire other book about coming back from the brink, impossible marriages redeemed. So it does happen. Yes. So when when I saw the trajectory of the book and how it was really very depressing in one sense, I mean, it's not a happy book. It's a very compelling book and you, you keep turning the pages. You can't you know turn away from it, but it's so dark in so many ways. And so I thought, okay, I gotta put. I gotta lighten it somehow. And I asked other people, not not the contributors, but other people. You know, if you've had a marriage that was just hopeless, tell me. Or if your parents' marriage seemed hopeless, but it was redeemed in some way, I want your story. So I put in chapter ten, which is called Stories of Hope, and uh, yeah, that's where you kind of can breathe and say, okay, people have come back from this. People have. God has. There is grace. You know, God. God's grace can redeem anything. There is no marriage that is beyond help and hope. And so I have a chapter of those. And then my uh, my good Bishop Olmsted, when he read Primal Loss, he said, well, you know, chapter 10 was my favorite. <laughs> and I think it's a lot of people's favorite because it's like, oh, finally. But he, And then I had another priest friend who said, I could use a whole book on that chapter 10 because there are so many couples who come in despair and we can't fix this. So that's what I did with the with the follow up, which was impossible marriages redeemed, and I got a bunch of I think sixty stories of uh, the that type of thing where okay this is the worst it could get really really bad situation and here's how God redeemed it and we have the ending through God's grace that is what we what only God can orchestrate if we don't end the story in the middle because God has an ending to these stories. But if we just ditch, you know, when we ditch the cross and run, he can't finish the story. That that was uh, the hopeful thing because we can't just talk about 
the devastation without what God can do. It's hopeful and and also it offers solutions. You see, like you had mentioned about maybe parting, if there is an abusive situation, but there are so many behind every closed doors in every home, there is a unique situation that is their particular cross for that family, whether that is someone addicted to pornography, whether that is overconsumption of something or an addiction, whether that's just an inability to engage. There are so many different things. That's part of what I loved about this particular chapter is it different people sharing, this is what worked for us, but over and over the prayers, I love this, to the children, pray for your parents, talk to them, tell them how you feel. Most of all, understand not to blame yourself for what they are going through. They are adults, they have their issues, and they both love you very much. To the parents, remember your vows. Whatever it is you are going through that is causing the division between you, get help first before considering divorce. Do not give up so easily as that is exactly what the devil wants you to do. Remember that you loved each other at one time. Try to go back and renew your strength. And I think we have to be reminded of that because our culture does not reinforce that. Our our culture is a kicking to the curb. Go on, kids are resilient, build back, your live your best life. And it's it's not to say stay in, in a dangerous situation, but to see these stories of people who have made it through to the other side is so important. And it's the mind of the church. Do you mind if I read you a little something from um, Pope Leo the Thirteenth? And this is the mind of the church. He said back in 1880, when indeed matters have come to such a pitch that it seems impossible for spouses to live together any longer, then the church allows them to live apart and strives at the same time to soften the evils of this separation by such remedies and helps as are suited to their condition. This is key. Yet she never ceases to endeavor to bring about a reconciliation and she never despairs of doing so. Now, that is still canon law as well. So he, he said that back in the day and then modern canon law says the same thing. It says, you know, if there is true danger, mental, grave mental or physical danger, and believe me, I've seen both. I know, I've seen, I've talked to many people, I've seen it, we've all seen it. That is cause, you know, that, and you're supposed to get the bishop's approval, but that doesn't, isn't really done, unfortunately, anymore. But the couple is able to live apart, and then it says, even in canon law, until those issues are, you know, basically resolved. And then at that time, reconciliation must occur. So the mind of the church is, we know you might have a terrible time that it actually even requires separation, but we will work with you to to get you back on track. And and unfortunately, you know, we could go into a whole other show about why that isn't happening in the church and why we aren't doing that for couples. But we as lay people, we need to understand that for our friends and family who are, are their lives are blowing apart. We have to remember the mind of the church is not just divorce and all and move on. It's let's figure out how to help this family become whole again, even if it takes time. And that's what I love in your last chapter 11, what the Catholic Church teaches on divorce. So what was your hope in including that in, in the corpus? Is it basically what you said there to be reminded of what she teaches, what we ought to know and acknowledge and recognize? Yeah, because we never talk about it. I mean, I, I know that I was 50 years old. I was working on this book when I was 50, and that was the very first time I had ever heard a homily on 
the evils of divorce, like that it was a bad thing. And it just happened to be my bishop. And I almost fell off my pew because I'm like, well, that's weird. Thank you, Holy Spirit, because I never have ever heard that. And I'm writing this book on this. But I, I've been in you know, mass for my whole life and never heard of it. So we don't talk about it. So I thought, well, let's go back to the vows and let's go back to what does the church actually teach about the divorce being a quote unquote grave offense against the natural law. Okay grave offense. That is a serious, deadly offense, but we don't talk about it like that. We don't even say divorce is a sin because we don't want to offend anyone. And of course, it's not a sin for the abandoned spouse. We don't want, we want to be very clear. Again, that person would be a victim of divorce and that person could go to communion, assuming there's no other mortal sin. But the person who's abandoned a family or cause the cause of that separation, that divorce, that fracture, that in itself is a sin, not just a remarriage without annulment. That in itself, to abandon or to fracture the state, is a mortal sin. And we don't talk about that. We just say, oh, well, as long as you're not remarried, you all can march up to communion. No, we have to go back to what the church teaches, which is this is a grave sin. It causes, it says divorce is immoral. It doesn't put a caveat like divorce is only immoral if you remarry outside the church. Divorce is immoral. You know, it causes devastate. It causes trauma, traumatic, you know, to the children. It causes uh, disorder into society. I mean, there's so much that the church teaches, and even in our catechism, and we don't ever talk about it. Going back to what I was mentioning about Dr. Kreeft and, and the reason why I said about families committing suicide is because he said statistics studies show that children look at divorce as equally or more of a grief than a death. It is, it is a death. And so we recognize that. I, and I know that from you know those that I know who have walked through it, where it's, it's a death of what you believe for the rest of your life would be your future. We have to address that uh, for the children too. What have you found in these stories, these now adult children of divorce and their witnesses as far as the healing? I guess the first part is acknowledging it. Oh, absolutely. The first part is acknowledging it. When I, when I edited this book, you cannot know how many people said, I am you know, 35 years old or I'm 45 years old. One lady was in her 60s. She said, I had no idea that anyone else ever even felt like I did because it's so not talked about. And, and some of these are like that 65 year old, she was 50 years past her divorce, her parents' divorce. And she's like, I, I, I never knew anyone felt this way. And then there were some people I remember who um, took it to their coworkers and they said, you know, I know your parents are divorced. How did you feel about that? And they would say back to them, no one has ever asked me that question. So it's not acknowledged. And so the first thing we can do is if someone is either facing, the child is facing their parents' divorce or they have had gone through a divorce of their parents, the first thing you say is, that was an injustice to you. I'm sorry it happened. It should not have happened to you. It was an injustice. Not like, oh, this is what, there's there's a lot of programs out there that tend to gaslight the, the kids and say like, well, you know, love doesn't go away. Love just changes, you know, and then it, you know, they call it a divorce journey or, you know, things like that. It's like, huh? And it makes the kid feel crazy. Like, why am I feeling so bad when everyone else is so happy about it? And they're all adults and my therapist, my pre, I mean, the parents and, you know, the teachers and everybody thinks it's such a great thing because the parents are great decision makers and I'm feeling like garbage. So I must have something wrong with me. So it's good to hear I'm sorry that happened to you. It should not have happened to you. And then we can figure out how to carry that cross to sanctification. But first we have to acknowledge the wrong. 
you did touch on, but at least mention impossible marriages redeemed. They didn't end the story in the middle because I think that it's obviously a great companion to primal loss. And I love the title primal loss because I, I mean, again, when I'm seeing it in the culture, whether it's my mom calling me up or that Oliver Stone interview, and it's like, it goes back to that primal loss, that very beginning wound that then for the rest of your life, you're carrying. That's why I think this is so beautiful though, because it does offer hope. Can you give us a peek into this? Sure. Those stories are the first, I think it's the first 50, or so are stories that actually did, the, 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 the couple did get back together or it, they were redeemed. And, and we're talking, you know, addiction, we're talking abuse, we're talking adultery, a lot of adultery. And so pretty extreme cases. And the theme there, I, as I was editing those first stories was, okay, these, these stories, as I'm figuring it out, what's the central theme? They're conversion stories because the people are changing their hearts. And there's a lot of forgiveness. There's a lot of looking at my own sin rather than my, you know, husband's sin or my wife's sin. And I was like, they all have this, that that's the general theme and, and trusting God, like going to God for your fulfillment rather than, oh, this person has to fulfill my every dream and whim. So those are beautiful stories of really ends up being conversion, but they're very, they're very rough. And uh, sometimes it takes a long time. One couple divorced two different times and he, and, and the man had remarried civilly and then divorced her. So, and now they're in their seventies and actually they're living a beautiful, beautiful life as uh, a Catholic couple. And then there's the second section, there's a smaller section, which is standers. And that's a whole other topic of itself, but those are the people who their spouse is gone. And the standers say, you know what, my spouse may be gone, just like some people leave Jesus Christ and go away, but I'm going to be faithful to my vow. I made a promise. I made a promise in front of witnesses, in front of the church, in front of God, and I made a promise to my children, and I'm going to stay faithful to my vow till death, even if she doesn't, even if he doesn't. And believe it or not, that is the model that is supposed to be followed rather than the divorce, annul, and move on model. And in fact, JP2 in Familiaris Consortio says that. He says, those who stand for their vows are the ones that the church should support. I think it's uh, number 85 or 83, I can't remember which document, but they are the heroes basically. And we pretty much pat them on the head and say, you're a fool, you know, why don't you just move on, get over it? But they are the heroes in our midst. So we need to pay attention to them as well. I love that. And even the title, The Standards, that is yes. fantastic. So these are both available. And Amazon, what's the best, easiest place to get those? Yeah, Amazon. I The reason that I, I self-published those two, um, it wasn't because I couldn't find a publisher. It's because I want those PDFs to be free. So I actually... If people can't afford the book, I, I offer the PDF for free to anyone at any time. And either one of those is laylamiller.net slash impossible marriages redeemed PDF or slash primal loss PDF. So the, you can get it for free and read it now. But so Amazon is where they are sold because they're uh, kind of a published on demand type thing. So any Catholic bookstores, I mean, I know there are good Catholic bookstores that, that carry the book as well, the books as well. I mean, it might not seem like a great stocking stuffer, but I think it is, <laughs> along with Cassie Kanubi, which is the, the book from uh, Lila Lawler and oh, yeah, the Breach, Bishop Olmsted. I mean, there's so many things. And my friend Vanessa in California, we always 
send each other book recommendations because of feeling in a lot of ways like we are back in the dark ages. And so we need all of these classics for our libraries and for our home, all that is true, good and beautiful. And this really is. And you in the very beginning, as we conclude here, I just want to reiterate, say who the book is for and what the book is, who should who should read this book? Obviously, adult children of divorce, who else? Yeah, I kind of put everyone in the kitchen sink in there. Pastors and priests need to read this because unfortunately they, they're confronted a lot of times with especially very suffering women who are very, you know, and they're men and they want to help the women. They need to understand that they need to help the marriage, you know, not just take a side. It's for people who are considering divorce. They need to take a look and see what their child's future is going to be like. It is not going to be a, a bed of roses for those kids and they need to be due diligence. You got to do your due diligence. If you're going to go through with this, you better know what they're facing. It is for people who have already divorced, those abandoned spouses who you know may need to know how to deal with their children, but also for the ones who caused the divorce. And they need to know how to go back to their children and ask forgiveness without excuses, no excuses. We had, I had one lady who actually was in her 70s and she said she read it. She saw something similar to her son and her. Uh, her she divorced her, the father when the child was 14, her son. They used to be very close. They fell out, you know, as far as being close. She said, I have to apologize to my son. This is 30 years later. She did. She apologized. She said, I did not make any excuses. I said, I'm sorry that I, I divorced your father. I'm sorry I, I blew up your family. And she said, you could literally see his whole countenance change, the lightness in his being. He couldn't believe it. And it's very important to do it without any excuses, like, but your father was this, and I'd have this reason. Just, just tell your children you're sorry. It will go so far in healing, they will save a lot of money in therapy bills. So it's for them as well to just kind of see what happened and and take accounting of that. And and it's just it's for it's for anyone it's for people who have intact families and who've never known. I mean that this was education for me. I had absolutely no idea. So anyone from an intact family has to understand the things they never knew about the walking wounded all around us and how to stand for a marriage when your children with your when your friends are suffering and your family is suffering don't don't stand for this person versus that person you have to say how are we going to get this marriage fixed how are we going to save this marriage and we'll we'll stand on the side of the marriage not you know any particular person so that's right for everyone. <laughs> yes, it is. It really is. And as you know, I'm, I'm very grateful by the grace of God for 21 years of marriage. And I feel after reading this book, it's like we, my husband and I both need to read it. I, I echo that absolutely. And sometimes the most difficult conversations are the most important to have. And I know that for you, it was an emotionally wrenching project, but of incalculable importance. So we thank you so much. Thank you, Brooke. Thanks for having me on. It's a difficult topic, but I appreciate it. Thank you for your work, all you do. And your other books, I will link all that up in our show notes. And uh, God bless you. Thank you so much, Brooke. You too. 